to the uh, Sensory Reform Podcast. My name is Zach Wise. I'm here with my co-pastor, Brandon Burks, and we are uh, grateful to you for giving us some time this week to uh, tune in to this week's episode where we're going to talk about a Christian identity. There's a lot going on within our day regarding identity and that question of who am I? We might see this in um, uh, confusion that exists out there and how many people are asking questions about their own gender, they're asking questions about their sexuality, uh, they're making many of these things uh, boil down to become ultimate, like identity. So we want to begin to uh, talk through that a little bit from a biblical perspective. There's obviously a lot that we could say here. However, our goal for right now is to give us some of the basic biblical pillars that might help us to begin to sort through what has in our day become a pretty thorny subject. So Brandon, could you help us get started here by introducing us to some of the uh, biblical and theological pillars that help us to think about our identity? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the first, I think, basic pillar uh, about our, our identity is that we were created. And I think that's, that's a big anchor for us. And it also is one of the biggest things that uh, perhaps is rubbing against the modern idea of identity, where in the modern idea of identity, um, our identity kind of is from within. You know, mm-hmm. our feelings are are spinning in identity. Our whatever we feel is who is who we are. We can change various things about us based upon something internal. But when you speak about creation and being created, uh, we're speaking about something external. There's an external. Uh, reality, an external God who is infinitely greater and, and bigger than us and who um, has existed for eternity and he created us. And I think that that is a kind of a big pillar, a good starting place. Uh, for example, we see in Genesis 2-7, for the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And so just the fact that we were created, I think, is, is, is massive. And kind of going with that being created, we're also image bearers. So we're not only created like, like a cat or a dog, uh, but we're created um, climactically in the image of, of God. So, for example, in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so not only were we created, we're, we're, we're made in the, in the very image of God. Now, of course, that is has been uh, calls for a lot of confusion, especially with those outside of the church who are hearing about this image of God, but not quite sure what to do with it. I mean, does that mean like when I, I look in the mirror, I'm looking into the face of God or something? So like we have these misconceptions about perhaps what uh, being image means. And I had a little uh, quote here from Herman Bovink, because I think Herman Bovink captured it well. He said, man does not simply bear or have the image of God. He is the image of God. And I think that's a helpful mm-hmm. note. It's not something that we were just kind of endowed with. It's not like we were a kind of a quote-unquote natural creature that was just kind of endowed with image. But we are the image of God. He goes on to say, 
From the doctrine that man has been created in the image of God flows the clear implication that the image extends to man in his entirety. Nothing in man is excluded from the image of God. All creatures reveal traces of God, but only man is the image of God, and he is that image totally, in soul and body, in all faculties and powers, in all conditions and relationships. So in other words, I mean, to be human is to be the image of God. We are, we are the image of God. Uh, we see it reflected, for example, in our emotions, in our cognition, in our behavior, in our relationships. You know, he talks about just a whole host of things uh, in, our, in, our, in our spirit and soul and, and so on. There's, there's also a distinction that's usually made in Reformed theology between the narrow image of God and the broad image of God. And I think this is a helpful distinction to make. So the broad image of God refers to things like our faculties. It refers to our, our bodies, our souls, our minds, our wills, our emotions, our behavior. I mean, all of these things, all, all of these various pieces, even down to relationship. I mean, that's the broad image of God. And the narrow image of God refers to true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so Adam and Eve in the garden, they're created in the image of God. They have the broad image of God, their, their body, soul, faculties, all of these great, great things. But they also have the, the narrow image in true knowledge of God, righteousness, holiness. That's how God, God created. Uh, God created us, and that's who, who, who we are. So I think maybe it um, sounds like what you're saying here, Brandon, is that when we begin to think about creation and the image of God as one of these foundational pillars for our identity, that we immediately begin to think of ourselves not as self-creators and bestowing identity, an identity upon ourself, but we are immediately, in this context then, beholden to another, mm-hmm. someone who is more ultimate than we are, and that, that one, our creator then, bestows identity upon us from the get-go. Mm-hmm. rather than being the other way around. Is that right. pretty safe to say? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and then also you have to wonder, you know, how much, I mean, I think um, we imbibe a lot from our from our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in places where perhaps, you know, it was more feudal or mm-hmm. uh, you had more of a, a monarchy or something, um, this concept might have been very easy to grasp. Like there's... There's, there's a king, I'm his subject, and, you know, it, it, it would have been kind of a given, perhaps. Whereas in, in, in our age where uh, we can kind of be whatever we, we want to be, uh, that has spread even to biology. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of filtered all the way down into, um, into things. But, but again, God is the, mm-hmm. is the creator, and uh, we are the creature, and we owe him obedience. And he has created us, he, he loves us, and so on and so forth. Uh, but, yeah, I think that... Uh, um, the creator-creature distinction there, um, yeah, really, really sets the stage for a Christian view of identity that is antithetical to what is being spoken about in our modern day, for right. sure. Right. So now that we have this uh, initial, um, like, set of pillars in place of uh, being created and being not just uh, created and then given some piece of the image, but that we are created as the image of God. That's mm-hmm. who we are then what else do we need to say about this? Because obviously we're no longer in that pristine state any longer as we speak about and teach about the fall of man into sin. 
-hmm. Could you maybe help us to think about how that also helps to play into our identity? Yeah, I think the fall into sin is another big pillar that uh, shaped um, who, who we are, I mean, shaped in terms of our, our identity. Because, you know, as I mentioned that distinction between the narrow and broad image of God, at the fall, the narrow image of God is, is lost. I mean, no longer are we, you know, in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. In fact, we are unrighteous, and we are unholy people, and we do not know God. And, you know, that's what the fall um, did to humanity. Now, humanity still had the broad image of God. We were still um, made in God's image um, regarding the broad image in terms of faculties and emotions and all of these things. But we often use that broad image of God almost against God. Mm -hmm. We use our cognition against God as fallen creature. We use our emotions against God as fallen creature. And... um, so yeah, I mean, Genesis chapter 3 and the fall, and then even as, you know, if you're reading through the Bible and you see the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and then just a few chapters later, as humanity spreading around the world, as wickedness is growing, you know, God's looking at the world, and it says in Genesis 6, 5, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, he's looking at a, at a, whole, a whole world where... It's just, he just says it's evil. In fact, only one, one family um, is righteous, and that's Noah. So this is right before the flood. Um, Paul, in the New Testament, speaks about uh, the estate of fallen s- sinners, and he says that they are dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. There he's talking about Satan. So you can, you can see the estate of, of a fallen person. Dead in trespasses and sins, following after after Satan. He goes on to talk about how our our minds are darkened, um, how we love darkness rather than light. I mean, all of these things have have kind of d- distorted that that great image that was uh, you know that we we were created in. Uh, so we are fallen sinners. We are guilty before God. We cannot save ourselves. We are wholly and utterly, completely dependent upon the mercies and grace of God. And that, that, that marring, I think, of us uh, has really been identity sh- um, shaping, where now we are not only categorized as uh, created or image bearer, but now we're, we're categorized as sinner. And that, I think, has a, has a great impact into, into who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, that goes uh, that, that that flows right into what uh, the mission of Christ was. Right, Christ came to to redeem us. So that was the great fall that we fell into. That was the great uh, peril that we found ourselves in. But also, that's where the good the good news starts. I mean, the good news starts where um, where uh, the bad news is. And so the good news is that God so loved the world that He sent uh, that He sent His Son. And as we um, are born again by the Holy Spirit, as we uh, confess faith in Christ, we are a new person in a way. Um, so we're, we're, we're not quite perfect. We're not quite, you know, uh, in, in a perfected state of glory, perhaps, but we um, have the Holy Spirit inside of us as we are born again by the Holy Spirit, creating in us a, a, a new heart. And again, it's not perfect, but it's starting to almost rebuild 
that narrow image that was lost in the fall, kind of starting to, to be reformed in true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Second um, Corinthians 5.17, for example, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So there is this passing away of the old and a coming into the new. And again, I think that impacts our identity. Now we're, now we're in Christ. In fact, Paul says later on in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And there he calls Christ our life. I mean, he, Christ is our life, and I think that that calibrates things. So not only am I, was I created, image bearer, but also sinner because of the fall, but now redeemed. Now Christ. I mean, he's my life, and I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm new creation. So that's, that's, that, that, that again, I think, uh, kind of calibrates our, our identity. Anything to add to any of that? No, I think that's, that's helpful. One uh, phrase that maybe fits into this part right here is that um, while we do sin, we're not named by our sin. Mm. So that seems to be the kind of thing that you're, you're pointing out here is that we are named as Christian now. Mm-hmm. We're named with the name of Christ. He is our life. We acknowledge the reality of our sin, of course, sure. but that sin does not name us. Right. Christ, does, Christ has instead. Right, yeah, we're not like murder Christian or gossip Christian right. or exactly. any of those things. We, we are in Christ. He is our life. Um, I, Tell us a little about, you know, we're, we are talking about these great things about life in Christ. Clearly, our state at the moment, our experience at the moment, is not what it will be one day. Uh, we are Christian and we will forever be Christian, but it's probably worth recognizing that our state as a Christian is still not glorified. So right, maybe you can yeah. flush that, that out for us. This pilgrimage now, what, what awaits us in the future? Yeah. Um, Mike Emlett, he wrote a helpful book called Saint Sufferer Sinner, where he was talking about counseling people. And you're counseling people who is, you know... It would be unwise as a counselor if you approached everybody as a sinner. I mean, that way you, you would come across nasty. Um, but it would also be unwise if you approached everybody as sufferer. Um, oh, and it would be also unwise if you approached everybody as just saint. And he's, he's trying to say that we're, we're, those three categories help us to, to understand. And one of the categories he fleshes out is sufferer. And that brings, I think, uh, a piece to the puzzle in that we are, um, you know, as you mentioned, pilgrims in this land, walking to our heavenly home. And as pilgrims, we go through various um, trials and uh, tribulations. For example, uh, the apostles said in, in Acts uh, 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Uh, we live on a sin-cursed, fallen earth because of Genesis chapter 3. The pathway is one of suffering. I mean, disease now happens. Death now happens. These are realities that affect us. And so um, suffering is something that um, 
that happens to people. People are sufferers. They, they suffer whether it's um, uh, emotional turmoil or spiritual or mental or physical or whatever it is. To, to one degree, we're walking, you could say, the, the valley of the shadow of death at times. We're walking that narrow path through many tribulations. And so, uh, and, and oftentimes, God meets us as sufferers. I mean, when, as you read through the Psalms, I'm reading through the Psalms in my daily devotions now, and uh, he, he's meeting people as suffering people, and he's comforting them. He's bringing grace and mercy to them. He's reminding them of who he is and who they are. And so I think that understanding that, um, uh, yes, we're redeemed in Christ, but it doesn't just like transport us to to glory or something, like we're still pilgrims in this world, and this world is still fallen, and we do suffer uh, throughout our th- throughout our lives. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, it's not like maxed out or, or anything like that. Uh, we have great times of peace and joy and uh, respite and so on and so forth, but suffering, I think, is a way in which we see God approaching people, uh, his people in, in Scripture. And but one day that suffering will end, and that's when Christ comes back. When Christ comes back, we will be glorified. Um, we will be made perfect. We will enter the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we will not even be able to sin. We won't be able to have a sinful thought. We won't be able to say a sinful word. We won't be able to do a sinful deed. That will be the final application, as the Belgian Confession says, the final application of redemption will happen when Christ returns. And so that's the place where we're headed. And, you know, our identity uh, there will obviously, you know, still being created, still being imaged, still being redeemed in Christ, but it will be perfected in Christ, brought to consummation, brought to glory. So we can see how redemptive history brings different, you could say, maybe calibrations to our image, right? Um, and, you, and you can see how, how mankind... Um, goes through various, you could say, estates. In the garden, there was the estate of innocency, where Adam and Eve were created in this place. They were in a, in a probationary period, you might say, and they fell. We entered the estate of sin and misery, and then redeemed in Christ, we entered the estate of grace, and then as Christ returns, we enter that final state, that estate of glory and, and perfection, being, being with, with God. So I think that those are some, some very helpful pillars to kind of think through um, about our identity. And again, these pillars are rubbing, I think, against a lot of what's being purported today. But Zach, I thought maybe you could bring some clarity too, because um, oftentimes, you know, we, we, we look at the Bible and we see, you know, we're redeemed in Christ, and we see statements, for example, in, in Galatians 3.28, where you know, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And uh, we, we read that, and, and that's obviously uh, going to impact our identity, what he's saying here. But what is he saying, and maybe also what is he not saying? <laughs> Sure. Well, I think that um, it's a convenient verse that some people will, will appeal to when they want to nullify whatever distinction they, they feel like is convenient to nullify at the time. But I think as we read throughout the New Testament, we see very clearly that Paul upholds a distinction between Jew and Gentile. That, that's, an, that's a real-life ethnic distinction in his day. And that there were some who were uh, part of Judaism and some who were not. And so by saying that, kind of, by using this, there's neither Jew nor Greek. He's not 
saying that this just simply doesn't exist. He's, in this context, putting them on the same plane in terms of sharing equally in the benefits of Jesus Christ. That there's not some hierarchy of salvation, that Jews closer to God than the Gentiles, or the Jews more favored by God than the Gentiles, or something like that. And we'd say the same thing, and it could be even shocking to his listeners, that there were still slaves and there were still masters in his time. And he addresses them, and in some of his letters, how should you conduct yourself in these different uh, positions in this world? But the shocking thing about that is that the master is not above the slave with respect to God in Christ, that they equally share in the grace and blessing of Jesus Christ. And the same can be said about men and women here, too. He's not saying there's no difference between men and women. He's not saying that, um, that a man is a woman or a woman is a man or this doesn't matter anymore. No. He gives instructions elsewhere for how men and women ought to interact, especially within marriage. But the point here being that men are not more blessed than women. And that would have been a shocking thing to be saying at the time, that men and women who trust in Christ are equally Christian and equally partake of the blessings of salvation in uh, Christ Jesus. And so because we're all joined directly to him by the Holy Spirit, who is then sent into, um, into our hearts. And so we don't want to be using that to then begin to nullify real things that uh, exist on earth, real things that God the Father did through the Son by the Spirit in his act of creation and in his act of redemption. Mm. But so far, we've, uh, we've kind of talked about the um, reality of our identity being given to us by God, that we are beholden to one who's outside of us, one who's authoritative, one who's the, um, the one who names, the one who rules and reigns. But why is this good for us, Brandon? Help us out to, to figure out why this is a comfort to the uh, sure. Christian. I, one place to go, and there's probably many, but one place that I like to go is Psalm 103, where he says, as far as the east is from the west, as far, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place is known and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Uh, what a great reminder, I mean, on many levels here. He's talking about forgiveness of sin. He's talking about um, kind of uh, this eternal love of, of God, even though our earthly life is but a breath almost. But he says he, he knows our frame. He, he created us. And I think it's a great reminder that God knows us better than we know ourselves. So, you know, the people that are wanting to find an identity by a feeling, an emotion, something inside of them, and then kind of project it out, um, it's, I think it's helpful to know that you are created by a God who knows you better than you know yourself, um, but also knowing that, you know, sin has affected us to where sometimes um, we just don't like our bodies, or we don't like how we were created, or we, we want to transcend the createdness uh, that God has, uh, that God has done, or that God has, or how God has made us. And 
again, that's where sin, uh, sinner, saint, sufferer kind of comes into play there because you can have a person who's really suffering by this desire, uh, but here is God is, is, is calling you back to himself, to his steadfast love, and he knows us better than we know ourselves, and there is real help, real healing, real reorientation in, in God, in Christ, as he, as he um, begins to show us not only who we are, but what we were meant to be, and how we can flourish in him, and what a, a good life looks like in him, and how life can be fulfilled in him in the way that he created us, not rebelling against his creation or not rebelling against his design. I like how the Belgic describes God as creating our various forms and our functions even, and how that's a good thing. It's a freeing thing, and um, it's not something to be kind of shirked off or something, but but it's, it's humbly submitting ourselves to the one who created us and knows me more than I know me. Any other thoughts? I don't think so, but I think, I think it's been great for you to walk us through this stuff, Brandon. Um, we wanted to uh, recommend to you, if you want to read some pretty in-depth stuff on this topic, especially as it relates to our culture, then we'd recommend to you Carl Truman's uh, recent book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He actually has also released a book, because this has been so helpful, yet it's pretty tough going. He has released a, another book recently that is a condensed version of this for the layperson. And the name of that book escapes me right now, but we'll put that in the, uh, the show notes page so you can ac access that book uh, there as well. But um, yeah, we do uh, hope this has been helpful for you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Cincy Reform Podcast. Find out our other, uh, find our other episodes at cincyreformed.org. This is uh, sponsored by Westside Reformed Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks for joining us, and uh, hope you join us again next week. Bye-bye.